0: Welcome to the FI Investors Podcast, helping you achieve financial independence through real estate investing, one episode at a time. We talk about personal finance, mindset, and real estate investing. Whether you're a rookie or looking to scale your portfolio, we're here to provide you with the tactics and actionable steps to achieve your goals. Here are your hosts, Diego Corzo and Ward Mahoney
1: what is up guys diego here with the five investors podcast welcome to another episode today i am interviewing casey gregerson and i am interviewing him uh, from puerto rico i am here for a week uh, on the condo and i'm having great connections this has been a great week so far gonna be interview on on a podcast tomorrow if everything goes well uh, my brother is going to be coming here unexpectedly for 48 hours, so it's definitely good. We're working on some awesome projects with FI Investors, and uh, soon we're going to be announcing the Puerto Rico FI Investors event for February 2024. It's going to be February 22nd to the 26th. So for all the FI investors members, definitely check it out. For anybody that's interested in learning more about the mastermind for sure, uh, send me a DM on Instagram at real Diego Corzo. And if you want to learn more about financial independence, we have a free course at sixkeys2fi.com. Six with, with the number six, Keys to fi.com you can get six for six different days, one key at a time and uh, give you a lot of knowledge. So today we're interviewing Casey Gregerson. He has built his real estate portfolio uh, starting in 2015 and now he has um, he has around 150 doors and he's investing out of state. So imagine he's living in Houston, his properties are in Wyoming. A lot of people would say, oh my gosh, that's a huge portfolio to be able to manage and to have, especially out of state. People usually get over, like they get stuck in analysis paralysis. And this podcast is going to help you out because we share about how he's been able to fund it with local banks, uh, dealing with contractors, how he's built his property management team and be able to create that leverage to get into to 150 doors. So this is an amazing podcast. You're going to be learning how you can scale your portfolio. So without further ado, let's get started. What is up, Casey? Welcome to the Fi Investors Podcast. How are you doing today?
0: Doing good, Diego. Good to be on here. Good to see you.
1: Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I know we had you a couple of weeks ago on the Fi Investors Mastermind uh, as a guest, you share an incredible story, gave incredible tips on how you're funding your deals. Um, and and also your story about how you started investing in real estate, were able to leave corporate America and how you've grown your portfolio. So uh, for the audience here, tell us a little bit about um, a little bit about what your portfolio looks like now. Um, so that everybody gets to hear a little bit about that, and then we'll work backwards uh, on on your story.
0: Yeah, you bet. So where we're at now, I like I like that strategy. That's a good way to do it, Diego. So yes, um, it's an easier way to frame it all up, right? You you know the ending. So I guess where I sit today is we uh, own and manage around 150 units of my portfolio, and that's just one I've grown kind of organically, which I can kind of talk about how I got to that point, but. But we now go direct to seller, so we do um, do a ton of marketing to find our own off market deals, and then with those deals, we will either wholesale them, we will fix and flip them ourselves sometimes. Sometimes we'll wholesale them, um, and some of them will hold for either our rental portfolio or uh, a fund that I'm actually raising right now, and we'll we'll buy the properties in the fund. So so we get all those deals, we fix them up, we actually do contractors in house, which is another thing I can get into, but we've. Just kind of over years of dealing with headaches with contractors, we found it easier to bring them in-house and have a little bit more control mm-hmm. of that process. And then the kind of the last thing we do is we do property management in-house because again, wanted to have a little bit more control of the process and, and and it took time, but we built out a system to where we could do it in-house, A, for the savings. And and the biggest thing though, is just the quality control. So we do all that in-house and mm-hmm. yeah, that's where we're at today.
1: Man, that is that is great. I being. Mean- able to get to 150 doors and creating your fund and all of that stuff that's awesome what um how did you though how many years how long ago did you buy your first property how did you first get started and also did you ever when you were buying your first couple of properties did you ever imagine was the vision always to grow it to 150 and beyond
0: yeah it wasn't um yeah it definitely wasn't (laughs) that's kind of funny. And, I, and I've and i kind of evolved over the years too. I remember I first read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, like a lot of people are in just listen to different things. It's like, hey, got to write your goals, set goals, have a number in mind. And I was always kind of like, I'm just going to hustle and do as much as I possibly can and do everything I can with the time I have. Um, but as I've gotten kind of matured and even just kind of become a better business owner, I've seen the importance of setting goals. So, so yeah, I definitely hadn't set it out to get an X amount of units. I really just love the, I mean, it, I guess it all started when I bought my first property in, in Wyoming. So I was going to school in, in, in Laramie, Wyoming. Um, actually my roommate, it was kind of funny. My roommate was selling the house and his dad owned the house and he'd owned it for several years. Um, and his brothers had all went to school. And this is a common thing. Um, in Laramie where I went to school is a lot of parents will go buy a property for their kids to stay in and then they'll end up selling it when, especially if they have multiple kids, they'll sell it at the end. So they were ready to sell it. And, uh, he's like, Hey, why don't you buy it? Or maybe see if your dad will buy it. And so my dad actually helped co-sign on with me because I didn't have a W-2 at the time. So he co-signed with me and he helped use just a little bit of money I had saved from college because I actually had a college scholarship to play football. So I hadn't used all my college savings. So we used about $10,000 as a down payment. And that's how we bought that first property. But I really didn't do it. So that was 2010. But I really didn't do anything when I first started because I basically I took a job with Shell um, in Houston in 2012. And as a drilling engineer, so my degree was petroleum engineering, and got into that. And yeah, and I really just kind of focused on that for about five years until, again, I read Rich Dad Poor Dad in like 2015, and then from there I just started reading. I went to Bigger Pockets and read some of Brandon Turner's books, and just started taking in all this as much as I could, right? And then I'm like, holy cow, this rental property I still had because I hadn't sold it. Like, man, that's I could do more of that. So what I did is I went and did a like probably a lot of people. I went and refinanced, or this is one of the best ways to do it, is I had done a little bit of work to that property and improve the value. Plus, I mean, I let real estate do what it does, and it appreciated over five years. And I went and refinanced that first property, and I fold out $50,000. And that gave me my down payment for my next property. So then I went and bought another kind of fixer-upper, increased the rents, and bought my second property. And that second property, this is probably when it really just, like, I wanted to put fuel on the fire, is... Is I when I once I fixed up that property, I basically converted it into a normal house in Laramie and it had a basement with its own access. So I made it into two different units and I took the rents from $700 where when I bought it up to 2600 a month. And the cash flow this is the biggest thing is the cash flow on it. So I, I used leverage and I used a small bank, but my cash flow by the time I paid my taxes, insurance, mortgage, everything, I was self managing it. But I was making a thousand dollars a month in cash flow on that thing. Um, and I'm like, holy cow. Wow. I mean, it wouldn't take too long to replace my income or really start to be able to have yeah, afford nicer things and do not like I, I kind of looked at it at the time, I'm like, man, that just covered my car payment or my car payment and then some. Yeah. So I'm like, man, I, I gotta exactly. go to this again.
1: So that, And so ahead. then so that was so you bought your first property, you said in 2010. Mm -hmm. And then you, but you didn't do anything until anything else. Sorry. You didn't do anything else on the real estate side until 2015.
0: That's right. Yep. I was just working my W2 job. Interesting. Um, Yeah. And here was the other thing. Go ahead. mm -hmm. You go.
1: No, no, no. You're good. You're good.
0: So the other thing was I was, I had shifted in my role to where I was working in the field at, um, at my W2 job. So when, in, in my industry in oil and gas as engineers, we would go to the field and we would spend, we would be on a site and we would literally be the, the call the company man or the the supervisor running the site, but we would work for 12 hours a day. And then we'd stay on site for the other 12 hours we'd have off. Um, but we do that for two weeks on, or maybe three weeks on straight. And then we'd have that much time off. So if I work for two straight weeks, I'd have two straight weeks off. So it gave me all this time to where I could be home. And that's when we actually, um, at the same time I bought that, that's property I just talked about where we, we had the thousand dollars of cash flow, We actually bought our first primary residence and we fixed up that property. And, and I don't share this one a lot, but, uh, this is one of the other big, I think turning points is, is we, it was basically a, uh, a house hack, right? We lived in it, we fixed it up and, and did, but we did all the work ourselves. And man, I, it taught me a ton. It taught me a, I don't have time to do all this. And this isn't what I want to do, but B it showed me like, well, fortunately, um, my, my father-in-law was really handy. He like, he was electrician. He knew how to do the drywall. He had part buddies that would do the plumbing. So we did it all together. We even built a garage. So we did all this, did all this by hand. And it taught me like a lot of the trades because growing up, I didn't learn a whole lot of that stuff. I didn't grow up in a, as my dad was an attorney. I didn't have a lot, a whole lot of like contracting background. Right. I worked on a golf course in high school, so I didn't have all that experience. So. Um, but anyway, but when I learned that, what I found was, man, I I learned a ton as I was doing like all these things with my hands. And it, and even to this day, it's really helped me now when we go to do fix and flips or do project management, or I'm looking at a rehab, right? Because I just, it's very easy to get, take advantage of a contractor if you don't know what you're doing, but at least I did enough to be dangerous. And I also did enough to know that I don't want to be doing that all the time.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that is important because at this point you're learning, uh you're a little bit more hands on and then you can make sure that when you're talking to contractors that they're explaining to you things the right way so that you don't get taken advantage of in in the future you know some of the cost all of that stuff one thing that you mentioned earlier that i thought was interesting was that um it was common for uh for the parents to buy a property for their kids when they're going to college, that's one of the things that I wish that I did with with my dad when and when I went to FSU. It would have been amazing to buy, uh, to to be able to have been able to buy a duplex, let's say, and then I can live on one side, rent out the others, live with roommates, all of that stuff. But one thing that I did like is that you let what you mentioned was let that you let real estate do its thing, right? Mm-hmm. Which is the re- real estate later. Will be will continue to appreciate, and then you being able to borrow from the equity. That's yep. one of the cool things about real estate is uh and being able to refinance, right? It's something that number one, you don't pay taxes on it when you do a cash out refi. You don't pay taxes on, yep. on that money. And for you being able to equal like 50,000 or, um, I, I was able to take around 160,000 from my first house hack back in 2014. And, um, and using that, right. It's like salaries that some people might make that in three years. I was able to do that just from the equity of that bank. So, I mean, from, from the equity of that house. So that was really cool. So then as you began, to buy your second, third property and stuff, when did you begin to actually scale or realize that um, you could continue to grow this into more properties?
0: Yeah. Good, great question. I mean, and the, the big hurdle was what you just talked about. It's that big down payment or that the cash you needed to get. And this would prevent so many people from getting started. Um, but again, that's just a common one that a lot of people I was just talking to some people at a conference this week. I'm like, home equity line of credits. That is the first thing everyone should do. You know what I mean? If you have a house with equity, go get a line of credit on it. Cause that's usually, I mean, even, even now with higher interest rates, like you should still be able to, if you do real estate right, you should still be able to beat 8% borrowing. Right. So, so that was the first one I did is I went and borrowed against that, that property. Um, and then I think I did it with my primary residence at once I fixed it up, but I've always, to answer your question, how I really scaled was through leverage and, Again, I kept my W-2 job for a long time because of this, because A, I could use leverage and I could continue to work with small banks. And and I guess that's probably the other big catalyst is what I did is that one property, I just keep going back to the second one where I got the rents up and I cash flowed a thousand bucks a month. What I did is I didn't go to a big mortgage company. I went to a small bank and did that deal. And the cool thing was the small bank actually did the commercial loan, which a lot of people don't know this, you can get, I got a commercial loan to buy it and fix it up. And then that same small bank had a secondary market mortgage option to where once I was done, they did the refinance for me, all in-house in the same bank. They actually saved on the fees to where I could actually go 30 year and and lock it up at a fixed rate. But the key is I was talking to a small bank, right? Which I didn't know at the time, but now I know. And after doing this for years is, that was so important to make that relationship. I worked with a small bank that understood, he got to know me, um, I got to deliver on it, de- I got to bring a deal, execute on a deal and complete it and show them, I started to build a track record, right? So then I started working with more small banks because ultimately I found though, that like each small bank, everyone's different, right? And, and they adjust, like sometimes now, now sitting here today, I know that, hey, sometimes there might be whatever's going on in the market, or maybe that bank is doing reallocating funds or whatever, they're always changing. So what I found was I started making relationships with more small banks. And again, I had this W-2 income that helped me and I was building a track record. So I just basically started making as many connections as I could with small banks. And one little best practice I would do is I would actually, and I got this from another guy um, from Bigger Pockets. Basically, I created a Google folder with all of my pay stubs, my tax returns, my personal financial statement, and what's called an REO schedule, which is something I recommend anyone do, even starting out as you start building at your first property, your second, third, fourth, is build an REO schedule. And I'm happy to share a template if anybody needs one. It's very basic, but it's basically just what's your property worth? What did you buy it for? Or what's what would you buy it for? What's it worth now? What do you owe? What are the rents and expenses? And it kind of, it's a really good snapshot of where you are at financially. And it's A, a great way to track your net worth, which I really like, And then B, it's a really great tool to share with all those lenders. So what I did is I created that package of documents and I would just send it out to like what I do now. And I was doing then is I would send it out to four or five small banks at a time and let all of them pull my credit and tell them what I was doing be like, Hey, and I'd first off, I wouldn't just, well, I'd start with an email, but then I would try it. Well, let me back up a little bit. I would actually try to get a warm introduction from another investor. Say, Hey, who are the best small banks, credit unions that you use? that have good flexible terms and are all about the relationship. And I would get some referrals and and that would be the best way to do it. But if I didn't get a referral, I would just Google it or I'd, I would just figure it out, right? I'd go find out the small banks in town. But anyway, I'd find four or five that had a good fit and I would send them all my financials, let them all pull credit at once, and then kind of explain to them, hey, this is what I'm trying to do. Um, I'm trying to find properties, fix them up. And what I'm looking for in a small bank is I want to find someone who's flexible because I want to scale this. I don't want to have to put in 30% every time or leave 30% in forever because I can't grow and I'm finding good deals and and doing all this, right? So I wanted to find banks that were willing to work with me. But again, I did it with like four or five of them. That way I could be talking to four or five of them at once because one bank might like the deal, one might not, but at least I would have somebody to finance my deals.
1: Yes. And that was what you mentioned there is key is building the relationships with the local banks, because a lot of people don't take the time to do that. And you being able to build, like in you building the relationship, you get to build the credibility to the more deals that you do. And you get them to compete against each other too, because maybe one can give you a different rate, one maybe be amortized a little bit different. Or if you're trying to finance the rehab, uh, they might be able to, they might give you that type of like bridge loan at a lower cost, right? And the closing cost and all of that stuff. So, yeah. that's awesome. Perfect. That's awesome.
0: Yeah, and where I was gonna now yeah, that was helpful because where I was gonna go with that is because your initial question was scaling, right? So I was trying to mm-hmm. scale with small banks. Um, and again, when I talk to these small banks, I'd be like, hey, I the only way I can scale is if I can, a put either less money down or when I buy something, you can let me refinance and get my capital back faster. That was the only way I could scale putting 25 to 20% down each time. So that was one strategy. But the second strategy was starting to raise private money. So I just started ta- just ta- started telling friends and family what I was doing and showing them some of the numbers and being And what I eventually started doing, which worked really well was I would bring in, I would go find a small bank and then I'd work with a private money lender. So the small bank would fund 70 to 75% of the front end. And then I would go work with a private money lender and say, Hey, I'll give you a second position loan on the property and you put that other 20 to 30% down, that way I could be in a deal with no money down, but still be able to take deals down. Because the other thing too, is you got to build liquidity, right? Like I don't want to put all my liquidity into my next deal because then I've got no cushion, right? So I was trying to fund deals with 100% with again, the bank and private money lender. So that's another way that I kind of combined that and moved in. And another cool thing I did, which I I was actually again, talking this week with people and they said they hadn't heard of this people doing this as much. But once I built a couple rental properties and they had some equity, um, and I didn't want to t- necessarily go tap into that equity, what I would do is, for that second line of credit, to re- to better secure and better grow, I would actually go get a second lien on an on existing rental property. And I would, and what I found is a lot of the private money investors that I worked with like this asset better because when you invest on a fix and flip, there is some inherent risk of like you've got to flip it right? And you've got to fix it up and there's contractors and there's there's some things that could absolutely go wrong, right? Hopefully you're buying at a, what we do is we buy to did big enough discount that we should be fine either way, but there is some risk until you fix it up, the value might not be quite be there. So what we would do is we would actually go secure them on an existing asset that's cash flowing that might have 20, 30, 40% equity. And that private money lender, they might go higher than the bank. They might go up to 90% of the value, but Again, it's an existing proven asset that has cash flow. And I could show them, hey, here's an appraisal. Here's what I owe on it. Here's what it's renting for. And they would feel comfortable because they're like, I'll never forget. A lot of them were like, Casey, I know you're not going to let this property go because I see how much cash flow you make on this property. And if you were to disappear on us, like I take over this property that's now cash flowing. So he goes, I know you're not going to do that. So I feel comfortable with his investment. So that was a way I was able to raise capital and secure the investors and the private money. And essentially, it was like a working line of credit um, that I was able to build. And I could use that, say, $100,000 at whatever, maybe 8 to 12% um, for like 12 months, 24 months, whatever term worked for them. But then I could go use that capital to go buy and fix and flip my next property. And that's kind of how I just kind of kept growing with the small banks, private money, and then finding good deals.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that that's really cool. And especially that is like scaling with the money side right using yep. opm other people's money uh and that is one key to being able to scale the other key is leveraging um there is uh the author naval naval something i always forget his last name uh he has the book the the uh the almanac of N- naval Ravakan or something like that and wow. he talks about the different forms that you can create leverage. So with leverage, you can do OPM, other people's money, uh, but then there's also human capital, right? Resources, leveraging other people's time. Uh, Because I know like as you're scaling and you having your full-time job, and I know that you were saying you're working 12 weeks on and then, I mean, 12 hours on, and then you had some time off, but how did you begin to later say, hey, you know what? I know that I cannot do everything myself. Right. You began to hire other contractors, other people. How did you manage to, uh, to also be able to find the contractors and, uh, manage the contractors as you were getting into different projects?
0: Yeah. Absolutely. It was, I I mean, I really learned it on that first. I keep going to that second property I told you guys about, um, where I had the thousand dollars cash flow. That one, the reason why I created this cash flowing machine was I renovated the basement and I also added a bedroom and a bathroom, but that was me managing contractors. And, um, I mean, I I basically what I did on that first one was I went to a GC and I got a quote from him and I was like, Holy cow, that just kind of blew up my budget. I can't really afford a GC. So I was like, all right, I guess I got to figure out how to GC it myself. And, and I was in Texas and I was working in the field on a, on a drilling location. And, uh, and it was, it wasn't always the smoothest, but basically while I was home, is I would go down there and I would, um, I would, well, really, I guess I had, I'd own a couple properties. Well, I own the one property, right. But I had made some connections with electricians and plumbers just because things pop up and you got to call somebody. Right. So I had a, a small network of contractors, but I basically what I did is I just started asking them for more contractors and finding more subs. And, uh, I was even actually finding, um, coincidentally, one of my tenants, used to be a contractor and he's like, hey, I'd, I'd be willing to do some of your like finished carpentry and different stuff. So I basically just started patchworking, putting all these different subs together and put that first deal together. Um, and then I did a couple more after that. But but I guess the first revelation was, man, if I'm going to do this right, I got to have at least a foreman or some lead guy, maybe a project manager. I got to have a contractor in-house or somebody there boots on the ground I could trust. So that's, I started that about probably five four or five years ago trying to find that person because i was also in a market where there was i mean it's hard to find contractors anywhere right but I, especially in our market it is so hard to find good contractors that aren't like crazy overpriced so i was like i got to bring it in house so what i did is i went and found that first contractor and again we've gone through several of them over the years it's not an easy it's a hard very hard rule to hire for but eventually we've been able to bring our contractors in house and i mentioned today too today where we're at today is we've got actually Three sets of crews in Wyoming, one in the north, one in central, and one in the south. But initially, that was just me finding a a foreman or just a contractor, finding one guy who could do a lot of things. He was a handyman. I mean, he could do the handyman stuff. He could do framing. He could do drywall. Kind of a jack of all trades. That was my first hire, right? Mm -hmm. That guy could do everything. And then as I scaled, I started building around him. And really, I started letting him build his team, right? Like I found the right guy mm. who knew the trades and I was like, you go build the team. And naturally those guys are used to doing that anyway. So I let them kind of build the team. Yeah, That was kind of how I built my first, really the construction crew. Cause that's always been probably the hardest thing to scale from, cause again, I still live yeah. in Houston today and invest in Wyoming. I didn't even mention that, but all my, my all 150 properties other than one is all in Wyoming and Montana. Every wow. And there's the one here in Houston where I live. So- so again, finding contractors, finding the boots on the ground. Um, and yeah. I would say the second thing is agents. Like I just started working with agents over the year. I mean, those guys are that's what they do all day, every day, and created those relationships to where they were either a finding me deals, helping make contract referrals. When I go to fix and flip a property, I would bring them in. I I've to this point, I've intentionally not became a broker and agent because a Um, yeah, I don't make as much, I don't get to keep that 3% on that flip or whatever, but I get to give that to an agent who is able to be, he's another boots on the ground guy for me. That'll go look at a property. If I find something off market, he'll go walk it for me. Um, he can make contract referrals. He can also just give me the ins and outs of the market that I'm never going to know. Right? Like I'm in all these different markets Mm -hmm. in Wyoming. I don't intimately know every single one of them, but these agents do. So those were kind of the other big component of my team without, well, and I could talk more about sales, but that's how we built our sales team. But that was how I kind of built the contracting and and agents.
1: Yeah, no, I think that that's really good, especially because uh, a lot of people would say, no, I don't want to like, I'm going to get my license because I don't want to pay that 3% or 2%, whatever that is. But if you're letting them, if they're the expert right? You're leveraging something so that you don't have to take that time to do that. And then you can do what you can do best, right? Absolutely. Rather than trying to get to another market, because they're the ones that are out there every single day doing the sales, right? Yep. Um, so that's really good. The, the other thing then, as you were building your contractors, and especially since you are in Houston, I want to ask you two things. Uh, number one, how did you pay? Like, how do you pay your contractors? Because I know that some people have different ways, different structures. Like, do they send you pictures? And also, how do you manage the quality um, from you from, from those flips and stuff, knowing that you're in Houston uh, and your properties are in Wyoming? Because a lot of people use that excuse, right? Yeah. Oh, I cannot do a flip out of state. I I need to be there. I need to see everything. Uh, but you haven't let that stop you
0: absolutely and this not one i would take lightly It's not easy and we still struggle to this day for accountability i mean to this the biggest one is you get to the end of the project and you're just trying to tighten everything up and it's so difficult to finish we still struggle with it but i mean really what we've done we've structured it a ton of different ways to where maybe it's just a gc and um we're paying him a fixed rate and we have a work a, a scope of work and he's accountable for that. And if he's late, there are fines. And also if he finished, well, what we do, one thing is if he's a week late, we charge, we take $500 off his bid. But if he's a week early, we pay an extra 500 bucks because time is money on these fix and flips. So that's one way to keep them incentivized to keep them moving. And then, yeah, it's just really documenting with photos and having documentation. But really number one thing is you got to have somebody you trust boots on the ground. If you're going to try to do this from afar you will get burned or i don't know it's very likely to get burned if you don't have somebody even if you yeah i don't know i i've been trust too trusting over the years and i've been burned plenty of times but i think you got to have somebody there who can represent you that you trust that will make sure that the little things are done especially at the end of a flip or whatever it might be to check on stuff right so having i think it's really important to have that critical team member and And really you need to cut them in somehow either a, they need to be motivated from like a profit share standpoint or commission or even equity. Like they've got to have some upside to where they want to, they want to treat it like you would treat it. Cause it's just really hard. You're never going to get a 10.99 person to treat it like you would even an employee. It's, it's difficult, right? So you got to give them some skin in the game to really get them to care about it.
1: Yeah. And even the contract, that's really good.
0: Yeah. Just going to have the contractors, we set them up. Yeah, I was just going to add the contractors. The last piece of that, because to kind of, I think what you're getting at is one way we've yeah. done it, or one tip I would say is we just bring in the, if it's a GC or if it's an in house guy, we give them a little piece of the profit share of the flip. Once it's done, we kind of say, hey, here's a bunch of me, or we define that, hey, you get 10%, 15%, whatever it is, profit share of it at the end for you finishing on time and on budget and trying to, that way we're both on the same side of the fence, you know?
1: Yeah. 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 No, that's awesome. That's that's a really good way to see it. And how how are you? Because does this mean then that you pay them a little bit less than the market because they're getting the profit, or do you pay them like what the market rate is plus give them those profits or equity?
0: It really depends, and that's a, always a conversation I love. It's funny. I love having this conversation with sellers. I have the same thing with contractors. It's like, hey, do you want to bet on yourself and keep costs a little bit lower, and then I can give you more profit share? Or I've done it too, where they're like, "Hey, we'll just pay it kind of market rate or pretty close to market, um, and then giving them a smaller profit share." But the best way is, "Hey, why don't you bet on yourself? Do things." I've even found some contractors will do it at cost, and and they won't, and they'll just build all their margin on the profit share, and that's the perfect, really, relationship because then they're both motivated. You're they're as motivated as you are to to keep this on budget and make it as profitable as you can.
1: Yeah, and also on time right? Because sometimes uh, there is like, I don't know if it's like Parkinson's law or Murphy's law. There's one law, right? That says like, you will do, if you give yourself a certain amount of time, it will take you that certain amount of time to do that task, right? So if you give yourself 20 minutes, it'll take you 20 minutes. If you take yourself, if you give yourself an hour, it will still take you an hour. So uh, so I think that with the contractors, uh, with the scope of work and everything, I think that that's a really good idea and it will get them to finish the work faster. Like maybe come in earlier than usual, stay a little bit later, maybe yep. not take like uh, a long break. Um, so maximizing the opportunity. I think that that's really good. Yeah, really oh great. yeah. So so then now as you've been able to to uh, to have the contractors, the banks, tell us a little bit about how the management part works. Uh, how, how were you able to create that management team um, because I see you then you being like the visionary or the CEO of that company with multiple departments, right. Especially yep. now that you have the fund and all of that. Uh, but on the management side, how have you been able to do that too?
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's another one that's completely evolved. Um, I mean, I guess it initially it started with finding, well, let me back up a little bit. So I, I had the the thought. It was actually right during COVID-19. And it was actually, I was still working my W-2 job. We were all having to repost for jobs because they cut like 40% of our organization. They're like, hey, your jobs are going away. You guys can reapply for new jobs. So the nice part was it was COVID and everyone was home for work and we really had nothing to do because they cut our jobs. They're like, you got six months to find another job. So the it was kind of scary, but the benefit was we were sitting at home with nothing to do. So I'm like, at the same time I read, four hour work week and started listening to virtual assistants. And I'm like, if I can manage all these properties and I had about 10 at the time from Houston in Wyoming, um, or actually I had, I think I had like five of them in Fort Worth. I had another five to 10 in Wyoming and I was doing it all myself. I'm like, well, if I could do it from here, why can't I train somebody to do it? So what I did is I hired my Mm -hmm. first virtual assistant actually out of Mexico. And I had to go through two of them. First one didn't work out. Second one, she's been great. She's still with us today. Um, But once I found her, um, what I did is I basically started writing out everything. I initially it was just a Google doc or a word document for anybody. Like I just wrote down everything that I do in terms of property management from, from screening a tenant to, um, or first off from marketing, how do I go find the tenants? Once I find one, how do I screen them? Once I approve, like once I'm already approve them, how do I set up a lease? And then once they're in there, how do we manage when they have an issue or how do they pay rent? And we had, we were using a software, we were using building at the time. And so I basically am like, Hey, this is how I use my system. And these are everything I do. And then what I did is I brought in my property manager or this virtual assistant as a property manager. And I taught him how to do everything and I recorded loom videos. I mean, if you guys aren't using loom, that loom is a complete game changer. Like literally all I did was just record yourself doing, if that's all you want to do to standardize something is just go record yourself doing it. It's very powerful and an easy way for anybody to get started. (laughs) So I just started doing all those and I I was able to get property management off my place, off my plate and into a virtual assistant doing it. So that was kind of the first one I did. And then that first virtual assistant hired more people. So the cool thing is, is and again, this was given to me by a mentor is, hey, once you train them and then once they understand it, now they get to train the next person and then they are going to iterate your SOPs and they're the ones that are going to continue to own the process and iterate the process, right? So those were kind of the first main hires. Um. So then I, at that point, I built out property management. Um, the next kind of big one I built out was my sales team, um, which we can go into, again, more details. That was, to give you in a nutshell, that was me hiring a lead manager for somebody to take care of all the, hold on, let me go bottom up. We we hired cold callers and texters to bring in leads. And then the next phase was I had a lead manager who got all the leads and they she screened them before they passed them on to me as the acquisition manager um and i'm the one that does all the appointments so the nice thing is i now just have to spend my time with somebody who's motivated ready to sell their house and and ready to go right to where i don't have to spend all my time with people who maybe aren't even wanting to sell right so those are kind of how i built out that organization um in my sales right and then and i had the contracting business right so those were kind of i built those three out and i built out team members and so i had a property and then i had a lead going faster but i want to kind of explain the structure so On top of each one of those, I had a property manager that was accountable for everybody in property management. I had a project manager in charge of all my fix and flip and all my foreman. And then I had on the final one, I had my sales team, which I'm still in charge of that. I'm the main focal point acquisition manager, but then lead manager and VAs, right? And cold callers. So those were kind of my three pillars. Mm. But the next step was, okay, I'm managing all those and I'm sitting in this seat on top of my sales organization. I need to find a COO. So that was the most recent one I did. And again, this all didn't happen. This was happening over approximately five years. But a year ago, I'm like, hey, I need to find a COO. And fortunately, I was able to promote somebody from within my company who was actually doing my marketing. And he, man, he was a rock star. He cared about my company as much as I did. So I was able to move him into the COO role, which finally, full circle, to answer your question, that is finally allowing me to be a visionary and be able to create the vision for the company, be be like networking, finding new relationships, doing the big things, raising capital, doing the things I need to do to where now I have my COO and then I have, again, managers of each department.
1: Yeah, Give me that's awesome. That's creating the, the right leverage. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's it's great, especially now with a COO, being able to create that leverage, right? And um, there's a book uh, called um, Rocket Fuel, where he talks yeah. about like the C having the visionary and the integrator, right? And that integrator taking on more of the COO role, um, so that you can still continue to grow that company, grow your portfolio. So that's awesome. That's awesome. And being able to one of the things that I did like what you said was that you give that you empower your people to own that task or own that project, right? So it's mm-hmm. not you delegating like micromanaging but they have that ownership so that's really good and so then now what's uh what are, what are your goals for uh for 2024 for the for your company for your growth all of that
0: yeah so another big kind of transition i've even touched on this which and you might people are probably thinking you're crazy, you're doing too many things, Casey, which I am at times, but just <laughs> kind of the way we got to do. We're in a small market, so we have to be nimble and have to be able to do a lot of things, is creative finance, right? So we've we found is our way to continue to stay relevant and continue to grow in this market with high interest rates is creative finance. And, and we've been doing these for years too. And I, I was actually gonna bring this up earlier when I was talking about scaling early on, when I talked about small banks, private money. Well, the other way I was scaling was through creative finance. And I was finding sellers that were willing to sell the property on terms. Again, maybe it was me taking over their mortgage subject to, or another common one we would do is the seller. I told you about the investor doing the the equity. I would actually get a bank to fund 75% and I would get the seller to carry back the 25%. If they didn't need all the money, they would just carry back the 25% so I could buy the whole property. right? So that's a big thing we're doing now is we're just talking to a lot of Uh, A lot of sellers and we're just, when I, so when I get on an acquisition call, my pitch is pretty simple. I'm like, Hey, I can buy your house, but I need to buy in this market where things are very volatile and interest rates are crushing us. We need to buy like 50 cents on the dollar. And I go, and I always tell them, I don't necessarily recommend that. Like if you need it, we can do it, but I wouldn't recommend it. What I would recommend to me to get you market value for your house and nobody's paying market right now because of the way the market's going, right? It's kind of dropping or it's a little bit flat, right? Right. So I'll say, we'll pay market value if we can do seller finance. So it's a good way that a lot of people are being more approachable to it. So anyway, so that's one big way we're continuing to take down more deals. And and then another big thing is just continuing to raise more private money. As I mentioned, the fund, we're bringing in more limited partners and just other private money investors to where what we have certainly found in Wyoming and even Montana now too, is we're able to find the deal, fix it up or rent it out. And they cash flow really well. Uh, which again, another thing I haven't touched on, but in Wyoming, the property taxes are very low and there's no state income tax and there's a ton of demand. So that all kind of breeds this like very strong cash flowing market. So what we found is if you play, we and we talked about this too, if you play the long game and let real estate do what it does, you're going to make money over time. So a big yes. thing we're doing now is bringing in, again, limited partners, other private money lenders to invest um, in the, in our fund to where we can buy stuff and hold it long-term. Cause again, the fix and flip can be up and down, right. But the long-term, that long-term play should always work over time. So we're bringing in more people to take on more deals like that. And, um, and yeah, that's really the biggest way is we're just, we're trying to, cause I guess I will say this too right now. And I don't know if everybody else is seeing this in their market, but again, because interest rates have gone high right now, we're sitting today and, um, tomorrow's November 1st, it's the holidays. There's not, there's hardly any buyers right now. So we're one of the only buyers. So I think it's a great time to be buying because again, the competition that we've mm-hmm. faced for the last three or four years is gone. Like there's no retail buyers. Exactly. I mean, there there are, but not many. So we're able to buy at a better discount. Mm-hmm. And my thought is hey, now is a great time to buy because we're buying at a discount. If we can make numbers work now at eight percent interest rates or do creative finance, whatever we need to do, but let's acquire assets now because when interest rates come back down. Ever all these buyers that are sitting on the sideline, they're going to be back in and they're going to be driving prices up like it's been the last couple of years. So I think it's a great opportunity mm-hmm. right now to be buying, but for us to do that, uh, we're buying it through our fund. Um, we're also working with, with private money investors. that will just fund hundred percent of the purchase. Um, and then, uh, let's see. Oh, and the other thing is we're just, sometimes we sell turnkey Um, because mm-hmm. I, I know there's a lot of people out there. that are like, Hey, well, man, I believe in real estate. I want the appreciation. I want the tax benefits. I want to be the owner. I want to do it. But I don't necessarily know how to go find the deal, how to fix it up and how to manage it. So we're finding some of our assets that, again, if we don't sell it to our fund, another option is we'll sell it mm-hmm. to another investor turnkey and we'll set them up so they can have the long-term wealth and keep up, keep all the upside. That's
1: awesome. That's awesome. And so then um, where can people, where can people find you? Because I know you've you've given us a lot of knowledge. We talked about the contractors, the banks, scaling, your org chart, how you're finding properties, all of that stuff. Um, where can people learn more about you? Where can people find you so that if they have questions, they can reach out?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So check out our YouTube video or our YouTube channel. So we do a lot of so we do a ton of content. YouTube is the best platform if you want to like dive deeper into one of these topics, like again. We've got stuff on like, how do we work with commercial small banks and create those relationships? Um, how do you find deals and fix them up and flip and fund them? We've got a video on that, Like mm-hmm. right? Like I my longer form stuff are great to go find on YouTube. Um, and then we also have our podcast and all the podcast uh, shows are on there and we'll dive deeper into that. But I also encourage people, if you're on Instagram um, or Facebook, um, go follow me there because we just, I mean, that's going to be, again, more of the shorter stuff telling you what we're doing day to day. And I just love connecting with people. I love talking about what we're doing and and I'd love to help people too. Again, if they want to, if they want to be a passive investor and just get in on a Wyoming deal mm-hmm. or a Montana deal, um, or if they want to be active and buy turnkey, like I, we're, those are the people we want to network with. And I just love helping people too. Yeah. I mean, that's why I wanted to come on here too. Diego, I love talking deals. You could tell I get excited about it. So i yeah. always happy to help somebody that wants, if you want to talk about your specific deal, man, love to help it's doing deals it's fun man i love I do it all day
1: yeah talking real estate is definitely fun especially if there's especially if you're passionate right so um and i know that you're in go abundance we met at the we met in orlando at the bp con event and uh yeah it's been great seeing your journey getting to know you and i look forward to staying in touch thank you very much for your time and i know people are going to be reaching out and uh, we'll be, we'll talk soon.
0: Awesome. Thanks, Diego. My pleasure, man. Thank you for listening to the FI Investors Podcast. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes and share this with a fellow real estate investor who you think would find value in what we do. Until next time.